1: This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello, and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I have with me Chris Chard. He is the general partner and managing director at Sower Farmland. Chris, how are you today?
2: Good, Brian. How are
1: you? I'm good. I appreciate you making the time. We connected through mutual friends, and I've always been fascinated by the agricultural space as an investment. I grew up in dairy farm country in upstate New York, and... (laughs) You know, never thought of it as an investment necessarily until connected with some groups based here in the Southeast. And considering everything we're going to get into this, but considering everything going on with supply chain, food security, frankly, global insecurity in a lot of ways, it's becoming more and more topical, I think, for a lot of people, including myself. So I'm excited to get into it. Maybe if you could give a little bit of background on yourself and how you got into the business? Sure, sure. And Brian, I, you know,
2: first and foremost, I appreciate you uh, having me on and wanted to disclose that uh, I am not an agronomist. So that's my background is about 25 years investment sales and, you know, starting that career, calling on uh, investment advisors, a lot of them at the the big wire houses, selling a product to them, mutual funds, separate accounts, and then moving on to um, institutional sales over the last decade or so. But I'm not a farmer. So as I developed my sales career, I have invested in farmland and that's part of, I'm emphatic about. The virtues of this asset if I've made over the last well going back over 20 years I've made four different farmland purchases personally, myself and my wife. And my wife actually did grow up on a farm and their family still owns that farm. But I am not, I grew up in a city and I did not grow up on a farm. A lot of times when people talk about this asset that, you know, they preface it by saying, oh, I grew up on a farm and um, I I did not. So I would. And, you know, furthermore, you know, as, as we talk about this asset and, you know, perhaps, you know, how we at Sower Farmland offer it, I don't have a role in actually, you know, the decision making on the portfolio that is left to the agronomists and the the people that have uh, much more deep fluency and experience in the asset. So I I thought, you know, we're part of our our mission today, as we formed this group about three years ago, uh, is to evangelize the asset for some of the reasons, Brian, that you just mentioned, it is a definitely a safe haven type of investment in a very, you know, I think a, a world that is becoming increasingly uncertain. The outcome farmland investment is, is pretty high up there. We joke internally in our, in our office that you know, what would derail the thesis on our asset would be um, you know people uh, stop eating food. That would, be, uh, that, that would be a deal breaker. That would really throw a curveball at us. But our group, so I'm just one of seven different individuals that work on this asset in both a fund and separate accounts. And the genesis for us coming together, myself as a a fundraise guy and a sales guy with the agronomist and the portfolio people, was a, a transaction a few years ago where a very wealthy individual bought about a billion dollars worth of farm ground in one transaction. And in doing so, that fellow or his foundation also owned, had already owned a lot of farm ground and had a team that was skilled at sourcing and vetting farm ground. So this new addition to his portfolio, the folks that had built it were disbanded. And myself and the other partners at Sower, I got a phone call about that happening, someone that I'm partnered with now, you know, that this is an opportunity now to take this group that had done an extraordinary job at building out a very large portfolio of farmland and reform it, put the band back together, and start it fresh. And as we did that, we were pretty agnostic to, you know, the structure. You know, they, the, I guess we, we thought, you know, we're, I'm the oldest of the group. So the, the young guys are more um, technology focused and hip with, you know, how you're going to do this in a modern day world, you know, with a very, very classical, you know, old school type of asset. Yet, you know, we knew right away that, you know, this wasn't going to work in a public type of REIT structure just because you know, basically a lot of the virtues of the asset we saw would diminish when you have the correlation to, you know, everything else, you know. And so we thought a public REIT wasn't the best way to do it. There's a number of other things out there that were considered, but what we we arrived at was a, um, you know, a Reg D private offering. We thought it has to be Evergreen because we're close partners with the, the farmers that operate our farmland. So we can't go raise a bunch of money, buy a bunch of farms, and then, you know, have a, a limited shelf life where we're going to exit and we're going to hang them out to dry. So it, it has to be evergreen in its structure. But, you know, basically the the group is based in Omaha, Nebraska, and are focused on this asset. Seven, we're backed by a larger real estate company that has about 70 employees and has been around quite a long time. But that's, you know, like I said, you know, we're, we think that the world needs this asset that the virtues kind of speak for themselves. And we're really, really excited to be able to offer, you know, a a product like this.
1: So let's rewind the tape. You mentioned that you had invested personally into the space. How did you first become, you know, aware of the fact that you could, you know, as an individual invest and what did that look like at the time versus the type of structures that you guys have today?
2: Yeah. So, um, my, uh, Inclination. I just, I like being in the country on on weekends. I like, you know, I've got a a relatively young family, but even before before they were a part of the deal, I like being out and, you know, part of all the original ground I bought had some sort of recreational tie to it, so some of it was forestry, land, some of it, but it had you know a river running through it with you know a lot of things to do on the recreational side hunting fishing, riding horses so that was my original inclination to owning the asset and and as over time you know I, I noticed the the virtues of we like to talk about a, a zero vacancy. you know so on on the ground you know that I've owned, I'll give you an example of, of how real zero vacancy, you know in comparison to something that that doesn't have zero vacancy, you know another type of real estate assets, perhaps you know the office space or another type of commercial real estate, the farmland real vacancy that the zero vacancy is very real. I, I have um, land that i I rent to a dairy farmer who you know operates over a pretty large amount of ground during Covid, he was not you know he had no income because the school stopped buying milk the local creamery you know wasn't wasn't accepting it restaurants you know you know the story he never once indicated that he was going to stop renting the land stop paying the rent but while uh, during covid i had two other operators approached me saying, hey, you know, I think they thought maybe that guy, they, they didn't own dairy farms. They were just, you know, farmer operators, you know, growing row crops on the farmland. They said, hey, um, I'd really like to start, you know, renting that land. And, and I said, well, I, I have a tenant and uh, he hasn't given me any indication and I, that he's going to stop renting it. And I really like him. But, you know, I guess that's, You know, and and his thought, even though he was clearly losing money, you know, renting that land, you know, farmers are typically they're optimists. And, you know, I think, you know, in his mind, he thought times will get better. And gosh, you know, here we are, you know, a couple of years later and times did get really did get a lot better. And and he's doing a lot better now. You have a farmer in place, a tenant as a landlord, because that's the only way we do this. We don't operate any farm ground in the fund or, you know, if they stop renting it it's highly likely they, they would never be able to get it back. And, and I think that's, you know, there's a lot of misperceptions about this space, but it's very real and it's very true. So um, that makes the the certainty of, you know, collecting the rent income from the landlord's perspective, very, 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 very high. And, you know, I, I often think of, you probably heard this silly joke about, you know, there's a guy who wins a lottery, wins a million dollars. Someone asks him, hey, um, what are you going to do? What do you do with that million that dollars? And he says, you know, I've always been interested in farming. i I think I'm going to buy a farm and I'm just going to, I'm going to keep on farming till I run out of money, you know, <laughs> and knowing farm ground and knowing farmers, I mean, that, that's very real. I mean, it's very easy to get into trouble in this space. I think uh, harder in the last year that you've seen, you know, commodities and, and crop prices go up a lot, but that's very real. So with all the farms we own, there is no inclination, no part of our process, you know, involves actually operating the ground, and I, I think that's an important you know distinction uh, from others. That not that they'd be doing it wrong. You know, I was told last week that you know, uh, gosh, wouldn't you guys consider it when you can seriously you know significantly raise the profitability of what you're doing by operating ground, and it's just not part of our model.
1: So let's talk about some of the benefits. You, you touched on a few of them. You know, diversification. There's yield and income associated with this. Obviously, there's very low levels of correlation to the overall market. Could you maybe highlight some of the things that really you find attractive in terms of investing in agricultural today? Sure, sure. So, you know, starting with that correlation, the latest number I've
2: seen to the S and P is zero point (laughs) zero one, a negative zero point zero one. So, I think you know you'd be hard pressed to find something like that. You know, provides a meaningful amount of income and that level of you know being uncorrelated to, particularly now that You know, I I think a part of the problem this solves today is, you know, one, well, just about every asset in the world seems like it's in a pretty big bubble today. (laughs) You know, well, this has been going up in value, you know, a little over a year. So this would be something that was not moving in lockstep with, you know, stocks and bonds as everything got very bubble like. So the other is, you know, from an inflation standpoint, that it has almost, you know, a mechanical relationship to inflation. So the correlation of uh, farm ground to inflation is very high. And I, you know, back up a little bit here that, you know, there's many different types of, of farmland an investor could own, you know, potentially foreign, there's also permanent crops where, you know, the value of the investment is tied up, you know, by and large in the plant itself, you know, think of, Um, Nut trees in California or orange groves in Florida. And we're, our team, the background has a very singular focus on row crops. So, what is going to, you know, you'll only find us owning farms in places where, you know, we think we have good water. And we have that row crops and that with, you know, farming row crops, you have the annual crop optionality. So, you know, what are you going to grow this year? You're going to grow, you know, beans, corn, wheat, you know, it, it varies on, you know, where those commodities are at, but we don't want to be tied up in a, a permanent crop. We don't think that's a bad thing. We don't think the foreign a bad thing. It's just, as you look at this asset, I would call it, you know, if you compare it to a fixed income, you know, it's more coreish. And those other things, the permanent crops, the foreign would be more of the satellite types of investments in the in this space. You know, on the um, the topic of, of diversification, there's an excellent piece out there that's actually the biggest player in this space is, as you might suspect, Nuveen. They have a paper, private real assets, improving portfolio diversification with uncorrelated market exposure, and you know they very specifically show you know the, the efficient frontier add this asset, you know, and not even a a lot of it, but, you know, say a 10% allocation, what it, it, it changes that risk return profile in a very meaningful way. You know, it significantly raises a Sharper ratio. It, it, you know, lowers the standard deviation, raises the return. And I think when you look at it from that perspective, you know, more of an academic perspective, the virtues just, you know, scream out at you that this is something that most people don't have in their portfolios and they could use. And from the perspective of a, a fundraising guy, you know, I would rather see people make those moves while those other assets are at, you know, all time highs rather than a couple of funds that have been around a while. They got a real uh, boost after the global financial crisis where people started moving towards things like this safe haven type investments. You know, after the fact, so their equity portfolio is you know Im- impaired by the crisis, and then they make the move. We'd rather see people making that move now because it's just an easy it's an easy analysis to go through of just you know add a small amount of this and make a big impact your overall portfolio.
1: and could you talk about how technology has really driven efficiencies within the space? You know, I think many of us still think of farmland and farming as an old economy type business, but there have been some dramatic improvements in the space. Then it obviously flows through to the investor. Could you touch on some of those? Yeah, yeah, and, and I think you know what makes that point pretty
2: obvious, Brian, uh, is the fact that you know a, a friend of mine that is a Wall Street guy, but he, he owns a large farm and has for a long time. You know, he mentioned me the other day. Uh, well, it wasn't too long ago, corn was three dollars and fifty cents a bushel going back. I, I'm thinking maybe a year, year and a half ago, he made a comment that a farm he bought 25 years ago—that's that was the price of corn then. You know, <laughs> yet the value of that farm ground had increased enormously over the couple of decades he owned it, and where that came from, by and large, was the um, increased production on the land, and that is specifically due to what you just mentioned. So, you know, the ability to you know, farm, I guess, uh, you know, implement technology on the farm where you're increasing the number of, you know, bushels per acre. That's been, you know, a big driver to the value of the land going up. And, you know, we see it all over the places. Every farm we buy and manage is managed by a strong partner of ours. It's actually the largest farm management company in the United States. And, you know, they're the boots on the ground. Trying to make the, you know, optimize the production of the land with the farmer. And and we do that too. I mean, our guys are always wanting to help them raise the productivity of the land, but, you know, whether it's the inputs they're using, fertilizers, the types of seeds, the equipment itself, the using GPS today, whereas, you know, that probably wasn't done at all, you know, two decades ago. So that's something that is moving forward pretty rapidly. And I think that, you know, someone might consider the ag venture, ag tech, you know, that's a burgeoning space and and something that people should probably take a look at. We're the landlords. So, you know, although we want the productivity to go up and we want to be able to you know, see the farmer succeed, you know, ultimately we are the landlord and there's a couple of, you know, backstops they have, you know, as far as crop insurance and, you know, to insure themselves against on the downside, not just, you know, being able, enabling them to, you know, be more productive on the upside using technology and more modern
1: practices. So maybe considering you've been in the space for a long time and you're actively raising now, are you drawing parallels between what happened during COVID to 2008? And how the asset performed?
2: Well, I mean, not really, because, you know, what happened during COVID, I guess that at least the market disruption, that was pretty short, right? And there wasn't a time to, you know, this is a highly fragmented, it's not a space where you can easily jump into. So I guess I would compare that, you know, during in you know predicting the future is, is not something that we're actively engaged with. There's no part of our investment that's based on a, you know, prognostication of what's going to happen to the stock market. But I'd say, you know, more in the next disruption, there'd be people gaining interest in this. We already see that because of the inflation threat that, you know, has popped up in the last year or so. There's more interest in this asset than there was. By and large, when the whole COVID thing hit, when it started, when COVID started, you know, they were still pretty flat over that time period. You know, the run-up really began when corn and beans started making their move upwards, which would be, you know, just basically in the last year. So that's where you see there was a Wall Street Journal article about an you know what a farm sold for in Iowa and I think it was a, an all time high of nineteen or twenty thousand dollars an acre and you know what what I didn't see in the article was you know well Iowa is is the be all end all some of the primest ground on planet Earth Iowa and Illinois are, are really really good so it's always going to be somewhat expensive but the article didn't mention that this piece of land was. Locked between two, you know, owners that had very deep pockets that were competitively bidding against each other, and the, each one had to have it. <laughs> and so that's the rest of the story there. I think it's fair to say you could buy a really good acre of Iowa farmland for a lot less than whatever that article had at nineteen or twenty thousand dollars an acre. But the run up. My point is, it, I, I think that looking forward, at some point there will be a disruption. You know, in financial markets, whatever the catalyst is, you know, really hard to say, but. People will move towards this asset in a big way You know when that happens.
1: We've seen it in the past. And, and that goes towards the resiliency, right? And maybe the factors about the Great Recession and COVID are different, but this has been something that people have invested in for a very long time. It's been proven to sustain a value over a long time. How do you think about the resiliency of the asset class when you're talking to investors?
2: Yeah, I mean, we call it a safe haven. And you know as you look at, we have a line that shows... The S and P over the last 30 years. And then the, there's an index for this. It's, it's not an an investable index and CREEF organization, the National Council of Real Estate Investment Fiduciaries, which create products, benchmarks that you're probably familiar with, Brian. And they're located in that Aon building off of Randolph in Chicago. They have a benchmark for us. And, you know, they, a part of that is they can break out what's permanent crops and then what's annual or row crops. And as you go back over you know 30 years you're looking at about an 11% return but the big difference you know to the S&P is you just don't see that volatility i mean you know i heard someone deeply familiar with this asset earlier this week and also an economist mentioned that you know you see rather than a, a pullback you see a cooling off of it you know where it'll flatten out for a number of years but not a big retraction i think you'd have to go back to see a And it even wasn't really that significant. If you go back to the big farm crisis in the 80s, you know, there was a pullback in the value of this asset. And then that was a very unique set of circumstances that all kind of the perfect storm against farmers that, you know, as far as trade embargoes and grain prices, and, and it all kind of caught up at the same time. But even then, you know, you're looking at an impairment, you know, in the actual value of gosh, I, I think, you know, nowhere near just a fraction of what you'd see in a big stock market sell-off. It wasn't big in any way, shape, or form.
1: So let's talk about the the yield component. Right now, everyone's looking for some kind of alternative income stream. Fixed income is not providing, you know, anything that anybody is very excited about. Private credit seems fairly stretched. Talk about the yield component of the investment.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there obviously that's just one part of the return. We're today, I, I think, you know, the newer properties we're buying you know, throwing off two and a half to three and a half percent income net of our fees and and our farm management company, all those fees. So, you know, it probably by, you know, things that generate income in private, you know, alternative investments, it's probably, Brian, a little (laughs) ho-hum. You know, it doesn't seem, uh, a lot of our investors, you know, right in our, our sub docs, you opt whether you want the money reinvested or you want it paid out. We collect rents, once a year, and that's a, a risk management tool we have. Essentially, if the farmer operator didn't pay the rent, you know, it's collected ahead of the growing season. So, you know, they're, they're not going to be farming it that year. And it's not enormous, but, you know, it's meaningful and it's just a part of that overall, you know, when you look at the end creep number over the last 30 years. I think you know three, four, five percent of that's probably income, and the rest is appreciation,
1: so we alluded to this earlier, but I want to take a step back and think about the macro environment here you know globally, with everything that's happening with the climate, there are some challenges for some areas of the world to produce enough food. there are some geopolitical risks in place that are preventing people from you know farming efficiently. How does that play into the investment thesis in terms of This growing global population that has increasingly, you know, a taste for some of the produce that we're able to make here in the U.S. I'm assuming that's accretive to the investment itself, right? It is. I mean, I I think that, you know,
2: the old uh, saying, you know, they're not making it anymore. You know, the fact that our director of acquisitions has mentioned to me that every hour, 170 acres of tillable land comes out of production just in the United States. And, you know, that near our office in Omaha, the biggest buildings I've ever set my eyes on in my life. And, you know, they put them in cornfields. You know, I think that's something that's going to be affecting the the supply of, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's still an enormous amount of U.S. farmland. But I think, you know, I, I've heard that some of the developing countries... That, you know, their burgeoning middle class want to feed their children, you know, US grown foods because they think that, you know, it's like our, like, you know, it's healthier. So there's, there's a lot from a macro standpoint, you know, there's there's a lot of factors like that, I think that are going to, you know, be to our advantage over time. And, you know, the fact that so much is going out of production, you know, that now getting back to your point, like when we look at, you know, we're of the opinion that, Climate change is real and we need to be very cautious and aware of the implications of it. We have a map that shows the footprint of where our team had been buying prior to us coming back together and forming this fund. It's a 25-state area and it you know encompasses... What I, you know, you call the the Midwest Corn Belt. It also goes down into the Delta. It also goes up into the Pacific Northwest. And the, the reason why, you know, I mentioned it, Brian, is that, you know, there are states where we think that, you know, because of climate change, it's just going to be really difficult to you know grow crops and and sustainably grow crops. So, you know, and I, I don't have to mention you're probably, you know, thinking of the same states, you know, th- that we have on the map, but you know, we're going to be predominantly centered where, you know, the the rain falls free from the sky and, you know, some of our lands irrigated, some of it's not, but you know, if you get in your car in uh, in the summertime in in Des Moines and you drive to Minneapolis, you'll see corn that before the harvest, is like 10 feet tall and you don't see a lot of pivots. So you don't see a lot of irrigation, you know, implying that they depend on the natural rainfall. And I think, you know, our folks that are agronomists could show you that the amount of precipitation in some of these Midwestern states has actually increased as a part of climate change. So, you know, what we're dealing with in the states we want to be owning farm ground is, you know, longer growing seasons and more precipitation. And, you know, yet it'd be highly unlikely for us to, to buy, you know, land in a Western state, you know, because of, you know, the drought conditions or if they are irrigating. And, you know, you're probably aware that, Brian, you can take sand and add enough fertilizer to it and nutrients and water and grow something on it. Yeah, that's not the business we want to be in because typically if you're irrigating, they're poking straws down into the aquifer and they're depleting it every year. It's just not sustainable. So we're our footprint is, you know, the Corn Belt, the Midwest. And, you know, to that point, you might be a little too young to uh, remember this guy on, on Wall Street, Brian. But there was a guy that wrote an article It was in the 80s, iconic guy, Barton Biggs at Morgan Stanley. And and he wrote an article, buy a farm and get rich slowly. And it was something that I read when I was in business school. And one of the reasons why I decided to start accumulating farm ground and why I I like the asset. But you know, he made some comments about the topsoil fertility and the combination of the, the heat and the moisture. You know, when you get into the corn belt, the US Midwestern Corn Belt farm ground, it's like no other in the world. I mean, it is just really, really productive. And, you know, I would liken it to, you know, the Saudis oil fields as far as a national asset, a national treasure. So we feel really, really comfortable, you know, buying some ground in a state like Iowa or Nebraska or even South Dakota, Illinois, Michigan, through the, the Delta region, less comfortable when, you know, you're depending on, what's turned out to
1: look like pretty drought-like conditions in a lot of Western states. How do commodity prices impact the investments you're making and dictate where and and, and how you buy farmland? That's a great question. So, you know, uh, this year, if you follow commodities, or last year, uh,
2: you, you saw a pretty big run-up in the price of corn and beans. And in our leases, they're typically written pretty short-term, but there's a flex in there. So we're essentially getting a bonus for our investors in a year with you know rapidly rising commodity prices. So it's something that you know we're able to participate in as that happens over the long term, you know, as these commodities get more expensive, we're able to raise the rents. And that's a you know a foregone conclusion for the farmer operator. So that's not like, oh gosh, you know, they all they do is raise my rent. I mean, we're talking to them a lot more than just about, you know, wanting to raise their rent, but in a rising commodity price environment you know, we'll just keep with the flex leases. And then with rewriting the leases on uh, themselves, you know, we're able to participate in that
1: upside. So kind of, we, we've talked about a lot, we've covered a lot of, you know, not to be a bad pun, but ground. What is the case right now for farmland? What do you think is the most compelling reason to invest in the asset class in 2022?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think... It- The, you know, starting with, it's something that you put in and you don't have to be tactical with this. You know, you can, it's a strategic play. So I think, you know, one of the foremost authorities on this asset is is a guy, is a professor at the University of Illinois, Bruce Sherrick. And I actually saw him present earlier this week at a Land Expo conference in Des Moines. I think, you know, one of the comments he made is that unlike, you know, if you're going to increase your exposure to equities, you know, the timing is probably going to make a, you know, a difference. He just mentioned that this just doesn't have that kind of impact with it you know, when you make the move. So I, I think today you know, say, hey, you know, broadening your diversification is always a good idea. You know, and this is an asset that, you know, although it's run up in the last year, you know, what hasn't? Right. (laughs) And, you know, over the long term, you know, one of the other economists at the same conference mentioned that, you know, it's the expectation is it's going to go through a number of years of, of still rising, that the cycle is not, you know, a one year, two year run up. It's typically, you know, five, six, seven, eight. So um you could be still in an early stage of the appreciation, but I think most of all, it's the peace of mind of knowing, you know, you own something real. I, I was listening to, you know, the author of the black Swan Nassim Taleb earlier this year, they were talking about all these things that are, you know, have emerged that look a little speculative and I don't have to mention, <laughs> mention what they are, but they asked him what the remedy of that was. And, you know, to all these things, that seem like they have a lot of risk to them. And he said, uh, buy some land and grow something. <laughs> that's what it is you know, buy some land. And I think that's the comfort level that people can know. This is a real asset. It's not a financial asset. It's not a digital asset. And if you approach it within the right structure, you can, you know, own it, title and deed, and collect the income, watch it, appreciate. And if things got really, really difficult, you know, it's your safe haven. I, I listened to some really elite Ivy Leaguers talk about, you know, what's happened in the last couple of years, with, you know, all the deficit and spending and the, the debt. And a lot of them think that, you know, they they think that this doesn't have a lot of consequence that, you know, things are different now. And we can do this, we can take on all this debt, and we can have we can drive these huge deficits. And what did what the Fed saying last week that they're gonna, they're gonna start cutting back their $8 trillion portfolio of bonds and other assets, $8 trillion. So I guess, Brian, you know, if you're at all worried that debt might have a consequence and that there is something around the corner that could be pretty disruptive based on that whether it's you know a weakening dollar or you know whatever i think this can help you sleep at night knowing You're owning a real asset that produces real income and has is very resilient over time. And I heard an economist refer to all these folks that think debt doesn't have a consequence in the long term. He said, "Well, it's it's, MMT doesn't stand for modern monetary theory; it stands for the magical money tree." And that if at some point, you know, I don't know, I look at it like this is your insurance policy against some really bad outcomes, whether that was with the economy or financial markets. And yet, as the policy holder you know, you're paid the premium to hold the insurance. (laughs) So, you know, there's not a big give up here, you know, versus, you know, stocks, you know, historically, you know, they've arrived at about the same place over time. But the foundation of this is just a lot more resilient.
1: Well, I think that's a great note to end on. (laughs) Chris, I want to thank you for joining me (laughs) and telling us a little bit about the opportunity to invest into agricultural farmland today. If people are interested in learning more about your firm, the investment opportunities, and connecting with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch?
2: Sure. All my contact information is on our website, which is solarfarmland.com. Feel free, um, an an email. be happy to set up a a call to introduce you to some of the folks that actually manage the portfolio, not just the the sales guy. And anytime, happy to engage with you. Uh, We think this is a very meaningful endeavor looking at this right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, I want to thank you. I hope you have the best of luck with the venture moving forward and I'm a believer. So I look forward to to hearing more and learning more and tracking your progress. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,